following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Good morning. As accurately reported, I am indeed Scott Smith, um, filling in for Anthony, who is overseas. Um, he is gone, so you get me. Usually what happens is Anthony goes out of town, sometimes out of state. This time he's left the country, so I don't know what to take from that. Um, he's just getting farther and farther away from hearing me speak, apparently. Uh, and I agree with Pete. If you, after the, after the message, if you want to talk about it more, um, come to Message Plus. This week, other weeks, you should go farther down the hall. Um, sorry. He gets to plug it every, he plugs Message Plus every week. So I will plug Sunday School when I can. Also, as Pete said, I was just in Costa Rica for three days. Uh, well, a little longer than that, but over the course of Monday through Wednesday, I spoke about 15 hours, uh, and I kind of got into the groove there. I'm excited to try it here, so I hope you're comfortable. You might want to go grab some coffee, um, but I'll try and keep this session to three hours. <sighs> to begin, let's start by reading today's passage. We're working through the book of Hebrews, so why not read what we're talking about before discussing it? On this topic, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain, since you have become sluggish in your hearing. For though you should, in fact, be teachers by this time, you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You've gone back to needing milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness, because he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature, those whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. Therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity, not laying this foundation again, repentance from dead works and faith in God, teachings about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this is what we intend to do, if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy to renew them again to repentance, since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up for contempt. For the ground that has soaked up the rain that frequently falls on it and yields useful vegetation for those who tend it receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is useless and about to be cursed. Its fate is to be burned." This probably seems a bit overwhelming, and it is. There's a lot there, but I think we can get through it. Um, Hebrews is a unique book. It was written um, to the Hebrew people. That's why it's called Hebrews. Uh, essentially, these were the Jews, and we know it was written between 33 AD and 70 AD. So we got a pretty narrow window, pretty good idea of when it was written. Um, it was not specifically addressed to believers, and that's a unique thing. In the, in the New Testament, almost every book is written specifically to believers. This leads some to believe that while this was written to Hebrews, some of these Hebrews in its intended audience were saved and some were not. It's a mixed group of Jews who had left the temple sacrificial system, but some may have been uh, saved, but many were not. So we've got a mixed group of believers and unbelievers. But again, they're all Jews. They've got a shared heredity, a common history, and they've all been trained in the law. So these are the starting points that the author is going to appeal to to build his case. 
they had also all heard the teachings of Jesus. They may not have responded by placing their faith in Christ. Some of them didn't. However, they had all heard it. These are not people who had not heard the gospel. They had heard the gospel. Technically, the specific situation of Hebrews doesn't exist anymore. Uh, This sounds pretty different from the group gathered here this morning, but there's plenty of application we can still take from it. In this room, I'll bet we have a mix of believers and unbelievers uh, and people of varying degrees of what the Bible calls spiritual maturity. But I'm guessing that you're probably not majority Hebrew. It's important that we understand the audience um, because this was written by a Jew to other Jews. The timing matters too. Uh, As I said, this was between 33 and 70 AD. So this is after Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. Uh, And these people, as I said, had been exposed to Jesus' teachings. The author, later on, will see, calls them babes or infants because they're at the beginning of their development. In this context, this is a criticism. Um, They all knew all of God's redemptive history. They knew everything he had said in the Law and Prophets because they studied it as children. But they were stuck back at that beginning of the Old Testament, in the beginning of the Bible. They, They were stuck in the law. They hadn't advanced through the natural progression of what a Jew should have followed. At that time, a Jew should have been schooled in the law and then should have continued on to maturity, placing his faith in Christ because he came first to the Jews and most of them refused him, so he went to the Gentiles. A Jew who was paying attention should have become a Christian, but not all of them did. So this is written to a mixed group of Christians and non-Christians. And we'll see that the author takes great care to warn the unbelievers among them that they're in danger of permanently forfeiting their ability to even be saved. Some people believe that the warnings that are mentioned in this passage were intended for believers um, who were not taking the teaching seriously and because they risked either losing their salvation or maybe they were saved and they were going to receive uh, spiritual consequences for the refusal to listen. Uh, Or maybe there were people who thought they were saved but they weren't saved at all. They put on the appearance, maybe they even fooled themselves because they misunderstood Christianity. My goal is not to sort this one out this morning. Uh, We can talk about that question in Message Plus if you'd like. But I believe the warnings here are specifically addressed to unbelievers, and there are good reasons to believe that. And that's what we're going to presume as we move forward. But even so, there are applications for believers today. So far, as we've been going through this book, Anthony has pointed out a number of themes that appear in Hebrews. And it's got a very consistent theme that just keeps progressing through. The starting point is, is to say Jesus is superior to all these Jewish icons that you're familiar with. You guys know about angels? He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. Greater even than Aaron, the great high priest at that time that they knew about. This author also talks about Jesus' excellence in everything. Everything is subject to Christ. Um, He's the founder of our salvation. He suffered death on behalf of all of us. He's the one who sanctifies. He is our perfect and sinless brother. He is the creator who is due all glory. He's our perfect rest, as Anthony spoke about uh, in the last couple weeks. And he is our great high priest. And this is the section that the the author is about to start talking about, is what it means to have a great high priest. But the book of Hebrews can be summed up by saying, Jesus is better. He's better than all these things you know about. And more specifically in this case, in the case of the people he's writing to, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Christianity is better than Judaism. 
But he's going on with all this commentary about all the people of uh, Jewish history and the redemptive history of Israel that Jesus is better than, all the concepts which find their perfection in Christ. And he just seems to be going topic after topic. And then he stops. And he takes this left turn instead of, and stops all this commentary he's been going on for about five chapters. And he says, I'd like to say more about this, but you guys are just too dense to understand. Um, and that kind of slapped them the same way it might have felt to you. This is not a compliment. Um, most translations in this uh, for dull of hearing, well, I'll say dull of hearing or sluggish, but the meaning is the same. These people were lazy when it came to listening and learning the things taught to them in scripture. The language suggests that they weren't always like this. Uh, There was a time probably when they were excited to learn about God and they continued to find out more and more. But over time, they became complacent and dull. And this dullness though, isn't an intellectual stupidity. Uh, Rather, it's a lack of moral and spiritual understanding. A lack of growth in the moral and spiritual areas. This inability and unwillingness to learn makes teaching them very difficult because they're incapable of understanding and they're just not listening anyway. If you haven't picked it up yet, this was an uncomfortable message for them. Uh, And this morning's message will probably be uncomfortable as well. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I need you to feel the discomfort that they felt. Uh, And don't raise your hands here. But how many of you, if I were to ask you privately without looking it up, could explain to me how Jesus is superior to Melchizedek, how he is a greater high priest. Or, how many of you could even explain who Melchizedek was? I'm not saying this to point at you, but just to say there are things in scripture that we just don't know. Um, Sometimes we get to weird names, weird concepts, things get deep and confusing, and we just skip it. Um, Or we glaze over when it's being spoken about. I don't bring this up to condemn anyone, but... To make you understand, I, I want you to feel kind of the same place these people were at. Because just before this passage, the author says, listen, I want to talk about this. I want to tell you about this great high priest. Um, but I can't because you just won't get it. Um, so he says to them, by now, you guys have heard this stuff enough times. You ought to be teaching by now. You shouldn't just be hearing this. You've heard this enough times. You can tell this to other people. This is not news to you. I imagine something like training an employee at a job, like at a restaurant, let's say. When you come in on your first day, especially if it's your first time in this kind of a job, you've got to be told when break is, what time do you show up, what are you supposed to wear, uh, where's the light switch, how do you, how do you do the basic things that everyone should know, honestly. But you have to be taught. There's no way to know these basic things unless you're initially taught. But honestly, how many times do you need to be taught these things? Over time at a job like that, I imagine, depending on your skills and abilities, you might be promoted through different positions. Like maybe you become a chef there, or maybe you become a manager. But I'm picturing the owner of this restaurant coming back after being gone, maybe he's gone out of town for several years, and he comes back and finds this person that he trained before he left. And they're uh, still stumbling around, wearing the wrong stuff. Um, They don't have the lights turned on. Uh, They forget to unlock the doors before the customers come in. What is going on. You should know this by now, guys. Uh, You should be even planning meals and ordering supplies at this point, but you barely remember to let people in the front door. What's the problem? What is wrong with you? This is not right. You've been told what to do over and over and over, 
I know you're not incapable to hear. I know you can't, I know you can understand things. So what's the problem here? Why don't you hear what I'm saying? And why don't you follow through on the things that you've been told? So here we're going to start just stepping through the phrases that appear in this passage. And uh, I've got them up here in context. So hopefully it will make some sense as we go through them. The oracles of God. Oracles in this sense, or the oracles of God, refer to anything in the Old Testament that was spoken by God. These were his words to his people. But they're typically pretty brief statements. They were things the Jews were expected to know by heart. And a, a typical example would be what they call the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's an easy thing to remember. Jews were expected to remember it because it was core. They knew that God was theirs. They were his people. This is an important thing for them to know. So these aren't complicated things to begin with. They're simple things. The simple oracles of God. But he makes it worse by saying the basic principles of the oracles of God. So those things that were already simple to understand, I'm talking about the basic parts of those. So what he's saying is you guys are still fumbling over the easiest of things. In context, the basic principles of the oracles of God here would be principles of the law that were the easiest to understand. Things like don't have other gods and don't steal other people's stuff. These should be things that were easy for them to absorb. So it's staggering for the author to, to understand that not only have they not progressed, but they haven't even grasped these ideas. So guys, this is easy stuff. What's the problem? Why are you stuck here? The author wants to say more about a topic, as I mentioned before, but it's miles beyond their ability to comprehend. He can't even start talking to them about it because they're just not there. Now, this is a topic he will eventually come to after about a chapter and a half of lamenting their inability to understand. Uh, so we'll, we'll hear about this in a couple of weeks. Uh, so what he says is he references um, these first principles as milk. When he talks about milk, you need milk. That means these first principles we talked about. For the Hebrews, this milk was the law given to them in the Old Testament. Their spiritual stagnation meant that they were stuck in the law and unable to move forward to faith in Christ as they should have. Because they had heard what they needed to hear, they just hadn't taken action. Note that for these who believe, milk might refer to the earliest doctrines we learned. So think in terms of the sort of things you might learn in Sunday school, or especially as a child, uh, you, you, or a new, what a new Christian, you might tell a new Christian when they're saved. Jesus loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. There are a lot of statements like this that are true enough. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's true. But this is where you start, not where you end. This is the beginning of salvation, not the full depth of it. A spiritual child would do well to stop there. But with maturity, you're supposed to build on that. And over time, you grow. Then he says, he talks about people who live on milk. So milk isn't bad in itself, but he's going to talk about people who live on it. So who lives on milk? Infants. And that's one I know. I see him all hours of the night. Um, so he's comparing these people to infants. Babies aren't bad. Babies are good things. We have two of them right now. They're sweet and cuddly and they smell nice, usually. Uh, they make adorable little sounds and other sounds. Um, but if they stay like this, I will lose my mind. Uh, I want to sleep again eventually. Uh, I actually joked that it wasn't really a joke, but part of the reason I went to Costa Rica was to sleep through the night a few times and see what that was like, and it was nice. Um, but feeding or changing them every time they scream 
Um, I'm not saying I enjoy it now, but it's going to get old if this happens, you know, for years and years and years. We can tolerate it for a bit because it's normal and proper and expected. However, if they were to completely stop growing physically, that would indicate there's some sort of a problem. Likewise, if people, if our children would stop growing spiritually, it would indicate that there's some sort of serious developmental problem, a spiritual developmental problem that needs to be addressed. That's what he's talking about here. The author isn't saying that milk is bad. After all, milk is necessary. He knows that. He just said so. But it's necessary if you're a baby. It can be added to your diet. When you're grown, milk is still something that you drink, but it's not enough to sustain you. It doesn't give you the nutrients you need to develop. Uh, plus, when you grow, you have tools like teeth and you know digestive tracts that are developed. You have things that are there for a reason. God put them there for a reason. If you don't eat something substantial, you will become malnourished and you will be misusing your body. He's saying something similar happens with our spiritual self. He's saying you Hebrews were not designed to stay in the old covenant. It's true enough and it's good enough, but that's not the end. The law was for you, but it was not the final word. It was only a partial revelation. And besides, it could never save you anyway. The salvation comes later and you're ignoring the later. Believers can make application here too. If you're a believer, you need things beyond Jesus loves me, this I know, um, in order to sustain you as an adult. If you're an adult has been recently saved, you actually are a child in this sense. So in this case, I'm not talking, or I'm sorry, he's talking about people um, who though they might be grown in the faith, they're babies spiritually. If this is the case, it's appropriate for them to drink milk. If you are a physical adult, but you're a spiritual infant, it's appropriate for you to have spiritual milk, the basic things. And in every church, there's a wide mix of all sorts of people, believers and unbelievers, people at different stages of spiritual growth. So it's appropriate and necessary to continue to teach the fundamentals because there are people that will be hearing them for the first time and they're good things to remind those of us who already know them. If you're one of those people this morning, you're right where you're supposed to be. The warnings about to come aren't for you. They're for those of us who have been Christians a long time but have been spiritually asleep or otherwise preoccupied in some way. My wife wasn't sure if I should say this, but I'll say it. I'm going to wait for you all to think about what it might be. Um, Occasionally I'll be driving somewhere, and all of a sudden I realize I can't account for the last 15 minutes. Has that ever happened to anyone besides me? Uh, So I'll be driving downstate or driving home from work, and I see some landmark, and I go, wait a minute, I'm here already? Um, what happened in the last 10, 15 miles? I don't even remember them. That probably doesn't mean I was asleep. I don't remember any, you know, scraping along walls or anything. Um, and I, it doesn't mean that um, I was driving unsafely, probably. But it does mean I was inattentive. Um, I was unengaged with my surroundings. And I think we do that in our faith, too. If you are not a new convert, then you need to wake up and move on. Milk is good and necessary to stay in your diet, but you need more. Otherwise, you'll continue to fall for every popular new teaching that comes out, to use the words of Paul in Ephesians. He says that people who do this are unskilled in the word of righteousness because they're a child. The word of righteousness here just means the Bible. These people, because they're children, they're unable 
to understand the Bible. So whether you're thinking in terms of unbelievers or just anemic believers, the meaning's the same. A poor spiritual diet will leave you unequipped to understand the Bible. Solid food is for the mature. Solid food is the meat of scripture. It's the, the teachings and truths that come to you or ought to come to you as you develop in the faith. But sometimes we avoid them because they're difficult. These are the things that we don't typically talk about with unbelievers or new converts because it would be confusing and unproductive. Uh, similar to how you don't typically talk about algebra to a third grader. But a well-rounded, mature Christian should be equipped to easily consume solid food. So, what are some examples? The one that we know about in this passage, what is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek? How should we understand the use of the Bible's word of the use I'm sorry, the Bible's use of the word predestined? If God created everything, does that mean God is responsible for the sin that comes? These are questions and concepts that a mature believer ought to be able to um, digest. They shouldn't intimidate a mature Christian. They should be easy for a Christian to walk through in scripture and in community. You should be able to do the hard work, sometimes harder than others, but you should be able to look at scripture and talk to others and figure these things out. I'm not saying they aren't difficult. I'm just saying that you ought to be able. Um, Sometimes they come hard. Advanced math can be difficult to work through. Um, Term papers can be intimidating. But by the time you get to high school or college, you should have the tools necessary to do these things. Likewise, by the time you've been a believer for a while, you should have the tools to be able to obtain answers to the meat of the faith. Uh, Then he says, for those who have their powers of discernment, Plenty of times I've heard the word discernment used like it's a superpower of some sort. People sometimes speak as though discernment is a special skill or gift that God gives some people and not others, which allows them to feel the goodness or badness of a person, place, or thing. The idea, that idea is not what scripture has in mind when it talks about discernment. At its root, in the Bible, discernment is the ability to make spiritual and moral judgments. Discernment is a form of wisdom that comes from maturity in the word of God. Uh, As we saw before, immaturity was people who could not handle um, the word of righteousness, who could not understand the Bible. Mature people can handle the Bible, and wisdom comes from that, and part of wisdom is discernment. Discernment is spoken of as something done by the wise and not by the foolish. And it's worth noting that in scripture, when it talks about a fool, it's not talking about someone who is stupid. It doesn't mean that they are um, that they are dumb. It's talking about a moral or spiritual um, choosing poorly, morally or spiritually. So God has given all people this capacity, but we develop it by practicing it in real life with instructions found in Scripture as we seek to understand the application. So a few examples of what discernment is and is not. Discernment is not having a feeling about someone or something. Um, deciding whether I should have an affair, whether that's right or wrong, that's not discernment. What I mean is, you don't have to think about this. It's stated plainly in Scripture. Anything that's stated plainly, you don't have to figure out. Uh, although we try and work our way around some things sometimes. Discernment is, the, is using the clear instructions of Scripture to understand how we should live. We're trying to figure out things that maybe aren't as clear, maybe aren't spelled out as explicitly, but there are principles in Scripture that inform us. 
For example, given the season, deciding how to vote involves discernment for the believer. Scripture says nothing about America. It does not talk about voting. It doesn't mention political parties or candidates or anything like it. But there are principles in Scripture that apply. Scripture talks about what true justice looks like. It talks about character traits of rulers. It talks about um, the responsibilities of those who are under leadership. All of these and much more can be applied to how we choose, how we decide who we think is the best ruler, the best way to vote on proposals and things. It doesn't mean the answers in scripture, but it means the tools for understanding things that are morally and spiritually ascertained are in scripture. So, by using the information in scripture, we can think about things like the end times, who gets saved, what's God's relationship to evil. All these things require discernment because discernment is the ability to make proper moral and spiritual judgments um, based on principles that are found in scripture. Knowledge of scripture, therefore, is required. If you don't know scripture, it's tough to use it. Also, sound judgment is required, and that too comes with spiritual maturity. Properly functioning moral discernment will help you apply God's word to issues of morality. For instance, what is right and wrong behavior? Understanding God's word will help us to um, have moral discernment. Proper um, functioning spiritual discernment will help you apply God's word to issues of doctrine. In this case, it's a little bit more nuanced. uh, as, As Spurgeon said, discernment here is not understanding or being able to tell right from wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Most of the things that get Christians hung up aren't overtly wrong. They're just a little bit wrong. And this is an issue today just as much as ever has been. Um, For instance, some examples. The prosperity gospel sounds almost right. The social gospel sounds almost right. Something called moral therapeutic deism sounds almost right. Hebrew roots sounds almost right. The new apostolic reformation sounds almost right. But each of these is an aberration and a perversion of actual truth found in scripture. You can't trust your feelings or your intuitions because they will almost certainly fail you in these things. And the reason I mention these is because those are among some of the, the, uh, the false teachings that are just rampant in the American church right now. They are all over the place and people don't realize it because they can't tell the difference between right and almost right. We need to be able to test things against scripture in order to see if what we're hearing is actually true or just almost true. And this takes practice. The next phrase says that it's trained by constant practice. And this supports what we just said. This discernment is not a special ability of some. It's the application of the mind that God gave us to do what he intended to use it for. It's like practicing an uh, an exercise will strengthen our muscle and give us more skill and discipline. Practicing um, with our mind and with discernment using the uh, uh, principles in scripture, will strengthen our mind and give us practice. And to do them properly, both of these types of practice require training. Spurgeon, um, also another place, is comparing these powers of discernment to our five senses. And one that stood out to me was how he spoke about hearing. And here's one example. He said, Many do not know the difference between the joyful sound and that which is half a note lower. He's talking about music that doesn't sound good. Why, dear friends, when a Christian is well taught, he knows when a note goes too high and he says, no, 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 that jars. 
Or when it goes too low, he says, no, that's out of tune. He wants to have the keynote of the gospel constantly before him. And any divergence from the grand old tune of orthodoxy, which he has learned from the word of God, at once makes him feel wretched. He has a fine, keen, discerning ear. He can tell at once any mistake and is not to be led astray by it. And through exercising these senses, we're, ability to, we're able to distinguish good from evil. As we saw before, the function of discernment is to distinguish good from evil in both moral and spiritual matters. So once we have all this, now he says, the top of the next chapter, therefore, let us leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now he doesn't mean leave behind like, okay, forget things like salvation and, and baptism and stuff like that. You know, just ignore all that now because it doesn't matter. That's not what he means. He means let's stop just camping out here. So in this beginning of this chapter, we see a change from the food analogy of milk and meat to practical application. Over the next few verses, we see examples of what the author considers milk with the implication that things beyond that would be considered meat or solid food. So he says, don't lay again a foundation. Laying a foundation is a good thing. If you try building a house without one, um, that will not go well. The purpose of the foundation is not the problem. A foundation is necessary, but it's not the end in itself. We make a foundation for a purpose. No one sets out to build a foundation. We're going to make a new foundation. It's going to be a great place to live. They set out to build a building. The foundation is a critical first step, and it has to be done right in order to ensure that the building will be on firm footing. If you were to skip that step, it would bring disaster. But if you get consumed with foundation laying, you will miss the point entirely. The foundation is an important step, but it's not the whole endeavor. Once the foundation is laid, you're supposed to continue on. The work keeps going as the building increases in development and complexity. Your faith should be the same way. Your faith should be built on a strong foundation, but it should also grow in sophistication and understanding. Now, for three verses, he talks about what this foundation is. And I'm going to skip that for right now. Um, If you want to talk about the specifics of what that means, I've got some footnotes there if you want to grab some notes. But if you want to talk about that, we can talk about it in Message Plus. Um, So, beginning in 6.4, he continues on um, with um, his next point. After talking about the foundation, he wants to talk about what has happened or will happen to people who have gone through this phase but refuse to believe. So some people believe that this word enlightened in the beginning of uh, chapter 6 verse 4 speaks of people losing their salvation and being made ineligible to be re-saved. I don't think that's the case. For one, I don't think salvation can be lost, but that's another topic for another day. But I also don't think that that understanding fits this context. And here is why. I believe a better understanding is 4 through 8 is that it speaks of those who have been exposed to Christianity and exposed to the church but have, been, but have become numb. Enlightenment here, it means that they've heard the gospel, they've felt the Holy Spirit's conviction, but note that it doesn't say that these people were saved, only that they were enlightened. They heard it. They were given enough information, but they didn't take that next step. Imagine, if you will, doing something like I did. I went to Costco a while ago and thought, let's check this out. Everybody's going here now. So we were looking at applying for membership and getting a credit card there. I spent an hour asking them questions. 
maybe not an hour, but it was a while. I wanted to understand the costs, weigh the benefits. Are there any loopholes? I want to make sure all my questions have been answered. And the clerk did a great job. She hung in there and answered all my questions, gave me all kinds of literature. They gave me everything I needed. Um, they showed me that life at Costco is superior to life at Myers or Sam's Club. That was her goal. She evangelized me well. Uh, she did all she could. She brought me right to the edge of decision. It's time to take action. But in this case, I walked away. Uh, later, we did go back and get a membership. But <clears throat> this, <laughs> and now my wife is moving on to maturity, Dave. <laughs> this is similar here. These people have heard the gospel. They know how the gospel is superior to the law. In fact, they have abandoned the temple sacrifices, so they knew enough to leave that old system. All that was left is to make a decision for Christ, but they don't. Then it says that they tasted the heavenly gift. I think the gift here refers to the presence and influence of God experienced inside the church. I'm curious if any of you have experienced this. I think you probably have. The body of true believers is a transformed people. Inside the church, people love one another. Um, this is where you can. there is acceptance and joy and love and mercy and grace and all the things that are the fruit of the Spirit that come when people are believers. This is, where, this is what happens inside a true church that doesn't happen elsewhere. In fact, I know unbelievers who are part of the church for a long time and then finally left because of their unbelief. Just They just couldn't stick around any longer um, because they were rejecting um, the message. But when they left, I would hear them say, and I still hear them say, how they miss the community. They miss those relationships. They miss the people, the acceptance, the love. They even see how believers can go to another church in another town or country and feel accepted and operate the same way there. And they long for that. They see this community and they know they don't have it and they miss it. I think this is the heavenly gift that these unbelieving Hebrews have tasted but have walked away from. It says they also shared in the Holy Spirit. This is often translated as partaking. They partook in the Holy Spirit, but they did not possess the Holy Spirit. So while they enjoyed the benefits of being near the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit did not live within them like he does in the true believer. Other translations in this verse say they became companions of the Holy Spirit. So this echoes that same understanding. Picture, they're walking along happily with the Holy Spirit. They're near him. They're kind of going in the same direction, but they didn't belong to him. They were tag-alongs. They weren't converts. It says they even tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So the goodness of the word of God, they, they had heard the word explained. They understood not just the types and shadows that they learned in the Old Testament, but they had heard the unveiling of them. They saw what it really meant. They experienced its fulfillment. They tasted the riches of scripture. They had all of redemptive history rolled out before them, just like the eunuch who had Philip explain to him. He said, how can I understand? Philip says, well, I'll explain it to you. Just like the disciples on the way, uh, on the Emmaus Road, that, that didn't understand the things that this man was telling them, who turned out to be Jesus, and later they said, Jesus explained how all the scriptures spoke about them. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? So these people are walking along with the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. And probably their hearts have burned within them, but they've done nothing with it. They remained unmoved. Likewise, they saw the miracles that were prevalent in that day, that accompanied as evidence that, that the apostles were from God. They saw these miracles 
which were intended not for the miracles. The miracles were intended to say, these people are legitimately speaking on behalf of God. They saw that and they ignored it. So in the end here where it says, and then they fell away, this is to say that even though they saw, they heard, they felt, and even understood, even though they had every objection answered and they had every teaching explained, they never chose to follow Christ. So it says, because of that, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So see if you can follow the steps here with me. They've been brought as close as possible to salvation, but they rejected Christ. They've experienced the benefits of the kingdom, but were unmoved. They had all their questions answered, but they stayed unconvinced. So what do you do with someone like that? What else can be done or shown or given to them to push them over the edge? Apparently, nothing. God opened every door and he removed every obstacle. He carried them right to the edge of decision, just like the Costco lady did, but they ultimately still chose themselves. And I guess this is understandable in a way where slaves to sin after all, some people just find sin so compelling they can't bear to let it go. But in the end, people are still choosing to, that they're deciding that the costs of following are too high and they want to stay where they are. So apparently nothing can be done for these people. So what's happening? It says that because they are doing this, they're crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Jesus had already died for the sins of the people. If they reject that, they figuratively join the throng of people calling for Pilate to kill Jesus. All that's left is to crucify him. But since he had already been crucified at this point, this is just a figure of speech. So what it's saying, the author wants to drive home, you guys, because you're, ch- you're choosing not to follow you guys are part of this crowd that, that crucified Jesus. Nothing else can be done. The guilt is on your hands. So then it talks about blessings and cursings from God. It says, land that receives rain is doing what it's supposed to do. That's a reference to the Hebrew believers. Those part of the group, the believers, they sucked up all the teaching they received, just like fertile ground sucks up rain. They, uh, the unbelievers among them didn't do that. It compares them with a land that's full of thorns that doesn't accept seed and water. This reminds me of the parable of the sower that Jesus told, and it reminds me of uh, Paul's statement that he planted the gospel, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So if you put all these themes together, you get something like this. The seed is the gospel. That's sown out. We're supposed to evangelize. That goes into everyone. The soil is the heart of the believer. People either, their soil either accepts it or doesn't. And the water is the teaching and training in righteousness that grows us up to maturity. As I said, this letter to the Hebrews Hebrews was written with two groups in mind that were mingled together. The good soil people were the believers, and the people whose soil was filled with thorns were the unbelievers. But they're a specific kind of unbeliever. According to Jesus in the parable of the sower, the people in this case were so preoccupied with the cares of this life that they choked out the gospel. There was just too much other. They didn't have room, didn't need the gospel. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, they longed for where they came from. Um, The Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt because that's where God was good. It was better there. Life was comfortable. Um, But in this case, it wasn't Egypt they wanted to return to. They wanted to return to the sacrificial system because they knew it. And in the end, that seems to be what they did. So the big takeaway from all of this is that you ought to be growing. I don't mean just that it's a good idea. I mean that this is what God has said. This is our, his instruction for us. If you understand, I'm sorry, if all you understand is the basics, you shouldn't just stay there. 
repeating the ABCs forever may drive them into your head, but it won't help you advance. It won't let you go anywhere else. My two-year-old, Mackison, um, has an app. He's got a tablet, and he's got an app that does the same idea. He doesn't know his ABCs yet, at least not consistently. Uh, he needs to learn them, and he needs to continue learning beyond that. But you don't learn by staying where you are. This app teaches him the alphabet by using it lots of different ways. There's a bunch of different games in this app. Um, there's puzzles that turn learning into a game where he drags letters, and it'll only let him put them in the right places. It's like having doctrines and learning to apply them the right way. He has videos that, like these here um, that show these letters turning into words and then doing things. So now he associates the word with the thing and the letters with the word. So like I said, he doesn't have the alphabet mastered, but he's already pushing into new things. And that is what will help him understand what the letters are for while it teaches him into new things to learn. This should be what we're doing as well. We should continue pressing into new doctrines of scripture. They will help cement the basic teachings we already know as they expand our knowledge of new material. Like I said at the beginning, I don't think we have any Hebrews here today um, who have recently given up temple sacrifice. But I'll bet we have unbelievers that are not Hebrews that attend here but have not received Christ's offer of salvation. You've been brought to the edge of decision over and over and you just set up camp there possibly for years. The author of Hebrews is warning you today. He says you're in a dangerous place. Wake up. Stop coasting along. Take these teachings you've heard seriously. In fact, you've heard them so long you could probably teach them. You know what you need to do, but you haven't done it. So stop messing around and place your faith in Christ. Otherwise, you will die eternally. But the rest of us aren't off the hook. We're probably not Hebrews either, and we aren't unbelievers, but many of us are casual Christians. I don't mean our faith feels unimportant to us. In fact, it might seem central to our lives. But if you're dull of hearing, as the author said, he said that means there's something wrong with your heart. You should have a passion for these things. If you have not moved on to the strong meat of Christianity, you're a malnourished Christian. Like the believers I was addressing... You, I'm the unbeliever, I'm sorry. You know how a person is saved. You know about worship and prayer and baptism. You take communion, and these are all good and wonderful things. But are you digging ever deeper into scripture? Or are you still the same place you were a month ago or a year ago or back when you were saved? Do you challenge yourself by seeking to understand new things, more advanced topics? Or are you content with the basics? Do you get intimidated by big ideas or avoid things that seem controversial? Do you skip the complicated sections of the Bible? There's a danger here. Leaving the study of Christian doctrine to other people is not an option. This prescription that the author gives us here is for all believers. Well, for actually unbelievers too. It's for everyone. If we are not continuing to press deeper in God, we limit our understanding and will grow lethargic. We'll fall, we'll fall for all sorts of false teachings. So I encourage you to move beyond these basics so that you can understand more and so you can explain it to others because that's what our role is, it says. He wants us to soak in the word and soak in these teachings so that we'll produce a useful crop. Pursue the strong meat of scripture. Take a class. Go to Sunday school. Subscribe to a podcast. Read a book. If you need a suggestion, there's plenty of people to ask. There's no shortage of opportunity these days to press deeper into the rich faith that we share. Lastly, if you're a mature believer, use what you have learned. 
we are to use scripture for a number of things, but one of those things is to help one another grow. You should be teaching. And that doesn't mean that you have a class with posted times and a classroom. This isn't talking about formal classes, necessarily. It means that we're sharing our knowledge with others. Every time you sit down and have coffee with someone, or somebody emails you a question, you've been a Christian longer than I have, what does this weird thing mean? You're teaching. You should be. That's our role. So, I encourage you to press on so you can do that. And in coming weeks, we'll have the opportunity to do this as we press into some mature topics that the author gets into, like what it means for Jesus to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That and other deep topics are coming. But you don't have to wait for that. You can look at, start pushing into the harder topics on your own. So I just I want to encourage you and pray that you continue to press into Christ, dive deep into Scripture, and wherever you at in wherever you're at in this spectrum, press in and deep and forward to the maturity that's found in Christ that God wants for us. Thank you, Lord, for for this group of people, this pe- people who uh, belongs to you and who pursues you. And I pray for anyone who is an unbeliever here that you would continue to press them, to convict them, so that they are not. Um, that they are not eternally lost, but that they do make a decision. I pray for the rest of us who are believers, regardless where we are in our growth, that you would continue to deepen and strengthen our spiritual maturity, that you would help us to help one another. Um, And I pray that you would do all of this in us, for us, for each other, and ultimately for your glory. I ask these things in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.